My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in truth, awareness of truth, perception of truth, understanding of truth, experiencing of truth, mastering of truth, forgetting truth, forgetting the carrier of truth, return to the primal source where truth has its roots, repose in the nothing. These steps on the path of truth can be found in Bruce Lee's Tao of Jeet Kune Do. A series of steps is all too familiar to me and today's guest, David Whitehead, he has taken the way of the warrior, a path that few tread, and a path that he has tread very bravely, uniting, joining forces with legendary conspiracy thinker Michael Tessarion, hosts the Unslaved podcast. He also hosts his own podcast called the Truth Warrior Podcast, and of course, recently put together a series called The Cult of the Medics. I'm Mystic Mark. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with the truth warrior, David Whitehead. Right? In martial arts that you experienced that day on the mat. And then you get to go home and stew about it and go, man, I was thinking about something else. I was distracted. Now I'm going to go back and do it like this. And then you come back in and you keep forging yourself. And we as martial artists probably don't even notice this process because it's like, it's like when you're getting, as a kid, you're growing taller and your grandma keeps pinching your cheeks and telling you, you're getting so tall. And you're like, what are you talking about? You don't notice it. It's the same with this. And, and so that whole package, I think that that creates a certain mind that maybe some people would say, oh, well, you're paranoid. That's why you're looking for danger everywhere. And that's why you're into conspiracy. But in my opinion, although paranoia, I'm not encouraging, let's just say, you got to prove yourself to me before I'm just going to believe what you're saying. That would be better than having the mindset that, well, I'll just trust whatever these people are telling me, whatever the government says or the media says. I mean, they, they, they couldn't possibly be lying to me, so I must just trust what they're saying. Well, as a martial artist, that just doesn't cut it. We're here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and 
I have the real honor and pleasure of speaking with David Whitehead from the Truth Warrior podcast, also the Unslaved podcast that you do with Michael Sarion. But we were just talking a little bit about your martial arts background, your martial arts history. If you could maybe even walk us back further, when did this all start for you? Was martial arts a part of your sort of uh, paradigm shift or were there other things that led to you finding martial arts and then subsequently becoming very well-versed in all these deep topics? Well, absolutely. And first of all, thanks for having me on, Mark. I'm already loving the podcast and we haven't even started. I think we're going to have a great chat. Starting with the martial arts, I would say, yeah, that was the point. I discovered it at the age of nine in my library. Well, I guess I first, you know, I watched like Ninja Turtles and all that stuff, but, and I was really like, I love that show. There's something magical about it. And then I was driven to go look up, look it up. I, you know, didn't, I'm like, I wanted to learn more about it. My parents didn't really know anything about it. None of my friends did. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to the library, start reading it. And I just pulled out every book I could from, you know, all the greats reading the Miyamoto Musashi's Book of Five Rings, getting into Bruce Lee's stuff, Heidi Oche, Gichin Funakashi, Jigoro Kano. And then eventually I found like more Hayashiba's writings on Aikido and the spiritual side of things. And I just got into the philosophy of it and I just, I was hooked. There's something about it that inspired something in me that said, look, it doesn't matter how big you are or, or what your uh, inhibitions might be. Cause when I was young, I was suffering from scoliosis pretty bad in my, my spine. There was two little curves in my spine that caused me a great deal of pain. And so I was dealing with that and my physical therapist, I remember when I was a kid was like, you should put him in like karate or something. Cause they do that push pull stuff. And it would be really good to help loosen up his back. And I had been begging my parents for years to put me in something. And uh, they were kind of like against it at first. Cause they didn't really understand it. And then finally they brought me and they saw, I was like practicing in my backyard, you know, just reading from these books and just practicing and injuring myself and all that. And they finally just put me into my local karate club in Saskatchewan and the rest is history. I was hooked. I was there. I was like a dojo rat, man. They used to call me dojo rat. I just be there first thing, last one to leave, went to every possible tournament and seminar and everything I could. And then went through that growing up and then eventually found my way into boxing. You know, after watching all the Rocky movies, I'm like, I got to learn the boxing. So I went into boxing, got my ass kicked for a while because you couldn't kick. And of course in karate, your hands are usually down. So I had to learn how to change that and learn that style. And then got into ninjutsu and kickboxing, various styles of kickboxing. And then I spent a lot of time in Japanese jujitsu, actually got my third dan in Japanese jujitsu, which I was lucky to have a really good instructor that was trained by original Japanese masters and some guys from Britain who were top level. And what I liked about the Japanese system was it was very eclectic. Like you were learning weapons, you were doing striking, you were doing self-defense, you were doing grappling, you were doing MM. It was like MMA, but without the sport it was like battlefield, you know, and I love that stuff. And then, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu became popular. It showed some holes in the ground game and the, and the close quarter combat. So started working on that. And as I was practicing and, and doing all that stuff and eventually became a teacher, ran my own dojo and did all that. I never lost my interest in the philosophy of it. Something about it was just like, I want to know why we're doing things, not just the fact that we're doing them. And there's so many rich things in those traditions from all over the world. There's even great stuff in our Western martial arts styles you can find. And, uh, 
when you trim the fat and you really pull it all together, it gives you a certain mindset and a certain view of the world and, and definitely a certain view of yourself. It's a very empowering individual type sport. And that just, that's my personality. I'm, uh, you know, I'm pretty social, but I'm also very much a loner in, in a lot of ways. And I, I like to do it like that. And so it, it appealed to me, like the team sports were great, but the martial arts was like, it was me against me every time. And I really right. loved that. And I learned a lot from it. And and, and this then, is leading oh, me right to, no, I'm sorry to, to interject, but it's leading okay. me right to where I kind of wanted to ask you about how it altered your social landscape, because you talked about, you know, learning the philosophy first that really sort of resonates with me. I was always... Uh, the type to read about something before I actually practice it. So I remember, you know, taking the the Tao of Jeet Kune Do and, you know, yes. sitting next to my, you know, red punching bag with water at the bottom, you know, one of those things that eventually would just topple over every time I hit it. But, you know, you start somewhere, you know, but I, I, I was sort of that black sheep as well, loner type. And I realized pretty quickly how martial arts was giving me this sort of edge on other people. And I, and I realized that was not something I wanted to exploit, you know, because the whole reason I became a martial artist was to sort of avoid being bullied or avoid getting beaten up. So now that I had this power or this skill, you know, I wasn't about to go and turn it on others and and use it you know for bad you know even though i wasn't maybe thinking on those philosophical terms at that age there was something inside of me that realized i had just kind of evolved at a different rate than my peers who were still having you know issues that maybe i had overcome at an early age i'm wondering if that was sort of what you experienced you know what sort of benefit did martial arts offer you and did that help facilitate this other way of thinking that naturally leads you to subjects like spirituality and you know intriguing conspiracies and whatnot wow really well said i agree like that's that that resonates really well because i actually it was that question of learning a skill like the art of combat that you start out by, you know, I was a smaller kid. I, I was a smaller kid, tall, athletic. I was in all the sports and all that, but you know, I grew up in Saskatchewan, man. And you, these, you got to prove yourself to these types of guys, these farm kids and everything, the big tough dudes. And, you know, you, you take your licks and you start to want as a, as a young man to go, well, I want to be able to take care of myself. So I guess it starts as the heroic journey of, I want to, be in a place where I'm confident walking around without being worried and edging and all that. So I started with that because of the, the bullying and all that stuff. And then you start to realize, okay, well now I'm, now I'm actually going to a point where I could easily abuse this, this newfound power. Cause that's what it is. You're gaining skill sets, right? And it puts you in an advantage. And so then the moral component comes in. And that was a big question for me because I'd been reading all this literature and you read like the book of the samurai or something. And it's, it can be quite dark. It can be quite Cause I mean, look, think of the medieval time, think about the mindset these guys used to have to be in. They weren't waiting for some five round boxing match or 12 round box. They were waiting for like war, like people coming at you with razor sharp, big steak knives and trying to kill you. So the mindset was very, it was foreign, but there was also a deep wisdom to it. There was like a, a simplicity to it. And there was the moral discussion in the martial arts. That's what made it 
different was these martial art traditions that evolved out of these combat traditions became integrated with the spiritual study because that question of the warrior of morality and justice and 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 all that the virtues of the samurai or the nine virtues of Asatru or whatever these are all components of the warrior traditions where they would say oh we've got these guys that are we're turning them from brutes into real high level full class warriors they have to have not just a superior skill in combat they have to also have morality at least the benevolent side of it there was also the dark side of it too but so I asked myself those questions and it was one time when I was at a conference where there was one of those things where you're training with different martial art masters on these different mats and you're just rotating for the weekend and everybody's having fun and trying experimenting new styles. And there was one Aikido master there that was doing the only philosophy talk of the day. Everybody else was just showing you how to, how to kill people and spin bow stabs. And that was fun. But I, my mind was like, I want to learn more about why we're doing this. And I asked him, I said, what's the, can you tell me more about the moral component of what it is to be a warrior and why are we doing this? And what's this all about? What do we really, I don't like, I'm learning how to cut someone's head off over there. I don't want to ever have to cut someone's head off, but it is cool to learn the skills, I guess. And anyways, he, he went over and he was, he just said, look, it's look at it as a metaphor. You look at just, you know, obviously practical self-defense and all that, but look at it as a metaphor for life that you are fighting your own inner demons. And you're also real martial arts is about learning the truth about yourself, about others, about the world. And it's a very practical system for learning the truth, as opposed to many of the more religious priest class kind of thing, where it was all pie in the sky, afterlife talks, you know, dimensions outside of reality, which is all great. But I really gravitated towards, you know, how's this going to serve me in my actual life, you know? And he said, look, you need the spine of a warrior to find the truth and to seek the truth. And that's where that term truth warrior was born in my mind. I didn't think of it at the time, but later when I was finally starting a show on a radio station, they asked me, what's the name of the show? And I'm like, it's gotta be like warrior something. And then they're like, well, you're out there trying to find the truth. Maybe there's some kind of a bridge there. And then it just clicked. Oh, it's truth warrior. That's, that's the whole shtick. And so what I've done is taken the lessons I've learned in the martial art world and applied it because along that train that I was learning the martial arts and going down that path, which it eventually became my full-time career. I was also just as a hobby asking those same types of questions about life, about the world, about the government, about the media, about everything. And so I just started contacting authors of books that I had read. Even when I was like 14 years old, I would just try to email or try to get in touch somehow with some of these people that really made me think, some of them would get back, some of them wouldn't. And it eventually turned into me recording conversations on Skype, putting it on my YouTube channel. And then it, it just, my whole, that intellectual career just started hitting. This, this was probably around 2009-ish. And then, so I was, but I kept that martial arts study going. I was still running my own school for a long period of time, right up until the pandemic, actually, when it all got shut down. And I was forced to just transition immediately into my online business because my physical business was shut down with no hope of being able to start something new in that medium with the government doing this on off switch with all the rules. And then I was like, well, I'm kind of doing this part-time thing with media. I did some television stuff in Hollywood. I did radio. I did all that stuff, but it was like a hobby. It was just for, it was for me, you know? And then when 
I realized that this research I had been doing on the occult side of the world, the real hidden, hidden aspects to what was happening. I just, I didn't realize how relevant it became and how actually urgent that information became, but it, it was, it was very relevant. And I said, okay, well, let's do this full time then. And that's where truth warrior and unslaved and cult of the medics was born was I said, okay, I'm going to go all in on that, but I never forgot those lessons from the martial artists. And I weave that warrior philosophy into everything that I do, because that was my way. That was my path. That's what inspired me. And I also felt like that element, that unique warrior's perspective was missing from what we now call the truth or independent media space. And so I, I thought, well, then that's what I have to uniquely bring to it is this crazy research I had done on all these amazing subjects mixed with the martial art warrior Bruce Lee kind of concept. And when I put it together, it was just magic. And I, I love, I love that. I love that. That's how I weave it through because I think that that warrior side is what helps guide people through some of the information that we have to talk about and get through because uh, some of it can be quite dark and you don't want to go down a dark hallway or into a dark cave without a nice sharp sword at your side, do you? So you need both. You know what I mean? Well, and you know, everything you're, you're, bringing up I resonate with it so deeply and I think you know like I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation there is something about martial arts and the people who are gravitated to martial arts in this way taking it seriously taking it to heart not doing it for egotistical reasons you know we're beyond that I think the you know even in this podcasting community the amount of martial artists who see the world this way and have a sort of solutions-based mindset about it, I don't think that's by accident, and I don't think it's, you know, even something spiritual. I think it's inherent to what you do to your body when you're learning these things. You're, you're taking the muscle memory, you're shifting it, and then you're adding that moral component. I mean... As an instructor, as someone who ran a school, did you notice that with your your students? Would you say that, you know, I have more of a, a sort of glass half full idea of it, an idealistic idea of it, maybe even? Or do you think there's some truth to that and that martial arts just naturally attracts people who are are sort of, you know, by their own merits, then resonating with a lot of these things that we would call part of the truth community? Really intelligent question. Um, that's why I know you trained. And I think that's true. I think there is a unique mindset. I've even spoken to instructors and senseis of mine that had no idea about any of this other research. But even with the stuff they did look at, even if they didn't agree with my assessment, I could still see that unique view of it's, it's a non-victim-like mindset. That is really what we're trying to show people is that the warrior tradition is the opposite of the victim mindset or even a collectivistic mindset where we just have to do what everybody else is doing and form this little cult and all that. even though and unsadly in a lot of martial art places it's everywhere just like in religions and everything else it, it, it gets all culty like that sadly but that doesn't mean that's the original concept right and so with my students i looked at it as i'll be marked as whether or not I'm a good instructor doing good work and doing it properly by how my, the kids are coming out of the classes that I teach. 
So with the kids are coming out and they're not getting in fights at school, they're calmer. They're as a kid thinking about eating healthier and having something to work for and striving for goals and learning how to work well with others, learning that there's got to be a mutual respect between people, even though different people are at different stages of development, you need to show the same level of respect because you always have it in your mind as a martial artist that you could be humbled in any moment, especially with arts like jujitsu, where it's not just, let's just practice some moves like robots and then hope we can defend ourselves. There's that live component to it. And it, it, you could be humbled at any moment. In fact, the entire experience is humbling. And Mark, I've been training my whole life and I still get humbled. I still feel like a white belt. And I guess I was told by one of my senseis a long time ago, if you can keep the white belt mindset, even after getting a black belt, you will never retire from martial arts. You will never quit. And I went, oh, well, that's, so I took that to heart and I try to breed that into the way I taught. And for a long time, I was teaching like in a very cookie cutter structured fashion. And that can be very good. And you need an element of that. But I really started to grasp the conceptual way of doing things for people. And I noticed it worked really well with kids instead of telling all the kids, okay, guys, here's the paint by numbers system. Let's just keep doing it over and over until you're bored to death of it. And you beg me to not do it anymore. Or we keep it a more living organic flow where we have the structural in place. So they know, okay, we have the foundation of the technical stuff, but I'm teaching them in concepts. Like someone attacks you at a bear hug or a chokehold. There are very proper technical ways to escape that. So we go through those, but I show them options and I teach it in concepts. And then I go, all right, Johnny, grab that Billy over there and put him in a headlock and let's see what he does. Let's just, Billy, what are you going to do? What would you do? And I see them do their thing. And then I come in, I go, well, think about what, how he's grabbing you. He's grabbing you in this way. His arm is shaped this way. It can only go in these directions. So if he needs to put you here in order to maintain the hold, how do you reverse engineer that to get out? And it makes them think naturally about the solution. Even if it isn't always right, it just gets the mindset in the right spot. And you, what you're trying to do with this method is breed that solution-oriented mindset that you have and not just, where's my instructor? Where's my coach? Where's Tony Robbins to tell me how I have to be? Like, it's, I can observe the situation and find a solution and refine myself through that process. That means, yes, I can learn a system that is effective and learn the rights and wrongs and the do's and don'ts, but I still have a part of myself being injected into this. So then like, and I got that cause I started with Bruce Lee pretty much on day one. And I loved his thing about it. It's the style of no styles, you know, styles separate man, he would say. And I was like, well, that's profound. That's big. That's bigger than martial arts. That's like, we should learn that with everything. Right. And look at the world, man. We're divided politically, gender, race, religion, philosophy. What martial art do you do? Like all these things. And it's, it's like, is that really the natural state of humanity or can we think in a more holistic way? And so, yeah, that, and then, so that's that one side of the question, the other side about what is different about martial artists that you see a lot of them at the helm on these podcasts talking about this occult information and occult just means hidden, by the way, I'm sure, you know, uh, it's nothing evil. Well, it could be, but uh, that's another story. But to get into this kind of thing, studying geopolitics, trying to figure out what happened with the pandemic, trying to catch the lies, looking for flaws, looking for contradictions. Isn't that what we do on the mats? 
I'm trying to find the flaws and contradictions in myself that are holding me back from getting triangle choked all the time or getting roundhouse kicked in the head every time on that one side. Why? Oh, it's because my hand is always low. You have to constantly be in that frame of constructive self-criticism, not something negative, but just to be like, how can I get better at it? Because for me, it wasn't about the belts or the championships. Like there was a time I wanted to, I was going to be a pro fighter. And then I jumped out of that real quick because I'm like, yeah, that's not the life for me. But I wanted to do it just to get better at it and realize that it's a way of making myself better on all these levels. And when you do that, when you have that, and you also are thinking about combat and threat and defense, like that is so different than like yoga, where you're, what are you doing yoga with goats these days, which is great, but there's, it's a very peaceful, soft sort of feminized way. And which is great. You need that too. But the unique element of the martial arts and the warrior tradition is because of the fact that it's about the real world, survival, life and death, thinking a wrong thing, believing a lie that is basically your own internal lie can lead to your defeat, can lead to your destruction. It's so you're, you're punished more severely in the martial arts for making mistakes and being incorrect than in a lot of these other fields, even in science today, where you're not really punished as much. You can draw all kinds, look at them, drawing all these complex theories and all these things. And who knows if any of it's even true. Like there's no way to all, we've, science has moved away, I think, from just testing everything. It's, it's become a cult of its own in a way, sadly. And I've seen it even in the martial art world too. But the foundational principle was survival, thinking, analyzing, looking past the a superficial layer, right? That's a key thing in martial arts, especially when you're looking at body language, when you're analyzing if someone's going to jump you or if they're just there to ask you for five bucks or just say hello. You need to have that ability to measure. You, you look at things differently because you understand consequences. Like there are direct consequences to your ignorance, right? In martial arts that you experience that day on the mat. And then you get to go home and stew about it and go, man, I was thinking about something else. I was distracted. Now I'm going to go back and do it like this. And you, then you come back in and you keep forging yourself. And we as martial artists probably don't even notice this process because it's like, it's like when you're getting, as a kid, you're growing taller and your grandma keeps pinching your cheeks and telling you, you're getting so tall. You're like, what are you talking about? You don't notice it. It's the same with this. And, and so that whole package, there's probably other elements I'm even missing, but I think that that creates a certain mind that maybe some people would say, oh, well, you're paranoid. That's why you're looking for danger everywhere. And that's why you're into conspiracy. But in my opinion, I'm like, yeah, well, it's either that well, although paranoia, I'm not encouraging, but a being, let's just say, you got to prove yourself to me before I'm just going to believe what you're saying kind of a thing. You know what I mean? That is actually something that would be better than having the mindset that, well, I'll just trust whatever these people are telling, whatever the government says or the media says, I mean, they, they couldn't possibly be lying to me. So I must just trust what they're saying. Well, as a martial artist, that just doesn't cut it. I mean, some guy can walk in my dojo and be like, I studied the tiger claw Kung Fu style on the mountains of Tibet. And I could take all you jujitsu guys any day of the week. I'd be like, well, that's all fine and good to say, but here I'll throw a few of my white and orange belts at you and see how it goes. Right. Like I want to know, I want to, and if you are got a superior thing, I want to know about it, but you got to prove it. And I think that's the difference. And so today it's that mindset has dovetailed for, I think a lot of people, I think also the martial artist instinctively senses the danger to his community 
and his culture and his society and his country, you know, and even the world, there's a, there's a, there's a certain breed of human being that even goes into a dojo and sticks around past yellow belt. You know what I mean? There's a certain type of person that I would call the warrior type. I mean, Miyamoto Musashi defined the typologies of the society of a warrior society in his book, book of five rings and the warrior sort of sage character is a very small percentage of the population that's willing to go and die on the gates to defend the country. So that mindset is already geared towards looking for danger and routing it out and doing something real about it instead of just talking about it. And that's what I think makes the difference on one level is these types of guys sense it. There's almost like an intuitive sensing that is different. And you were mentioning the body, what we do to our body. I'll finish with this point here is if you get into the work of people like Wilhelm Reich, who was talking about something he called somatic intelligence, and you just read how he defines the bioenergy of the body and how that's actually your consciousness. It's not all in your brain that your, your being is a thinking being. It's not just a brain thing that mirrors perfectly what we've been hearing about the key energy and the chi energy and the prana and the, the energy flow and how these guys can go blindfolded and still do stuff. And you get these like Jedi senses and whatnot, it all dovetails. And, and so I just think that those martial artists might be more tuned physically like an instrument and they can feel and perceive things that the average person that just plays tennis or whatever, which not knocking tennis, it just wouldn't, hasn't trained themselves to see if that makes any sense. It makes so much sense. And it's, it's, it's really like, I'm sitting here kind of like connecting all these dots in my head to the point where I was a little bit nervous if I'd even have something to retort. But what you said about sage and this small percentage, you know, this is why my family thinks I'm crazy because something happened when I was a martial artist where I realized that going to do a nine to five job was not going to help the world at all. It was the opposite. It was going to cause more chaos if someone like me was not using this mind to help somehow, right? And I can't sit here and tell you that I've done nearly as much as you have, David. I mean, I've been kind of a stoner slacker, but I've had this mindset of like, you know, working within society is going to crush my soul. It's going to extinguish this flame that was ignited when I started this journey, when I began to read these books that cultivated this somatic intelligence. And I really, I mean, it's to the point where I think, you know, and this again could be idealistic thinking, but I have a lot of books behind me and I used to sleep with a bookshelf on the foot of my bed. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think there's something about it where maybe just being in proximity to these written words, I've absorbed the information into my, my somatic intelligence. Cause sometimes I'll be talking on this podcast and something will flow through me from one of these books and I'll go back and read and be like, I don't even remember reading this. You know, if I did, <laughs> I was probably much younger, but 
yeah, there's something to it. And I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal or anything like that, because I think what's so cool about martial arts is there is a clear, defined path to success. It's not like, you know, if you're a pro gambler and you're like a whiz at something, you know, everybody wants to figure out how they did it. And they, they can't tell you how they did it because there there isn't really a, maybe there's a science. I don't know. But with martial arts, there's a, nobody's trying to stop you from learning it. It's on you to learn learn it and you're like you said most people i'm sure you know this all too well as someone who's you know was running a gym unfortunately people don't make it past yellow belt it doesn't really make for the best most successful business model unfortunately you know but what happens is you you gravitate a bunch of people who who end up being quality you know like me and my sifu we you know we reconnected on the podcast And it's a quality conversation because him and I know each other. We've known each other for a long time on this deep level that I don't think many martial artists, you know, maybe it's hard for me to convey, but like there's a certain quality of of friendship that you you can, you know, build with your fellow Mm -hmm. martial artists. And that says something about, you know, the quality of, of what we're trying to do here, you know, when did this martial arts sort of philosophy kind of crystallize into the truth warrior mission? Because you know, you talked about getting on radio and kind of doing it as a, as like a, just a fun intellectual sort of project, right? You wanted to talk to these authors, you wanted to put it out there. I don't know if it started with radio or podcast, forgive me for not doing my homework, but you know, when did you feel, because, you know, as somebody who's instructed martial arts myself, I felt the voice come through me, like this power mm. of like, I'm not really talking right now. My knowledge base is talking. My ego is not talking. My knowledge is talking, you know, like when I would show somebody a move, my my heart was speaking to them, not my brain, you know, right. and I think, I think when we can connect those two, it, it brings another, you know, bringing it back to the, the thing I mentioned earlier. There's something to the amount of broadcasters that are martial artists. I just think that it's something going on physiologically. Oh man, you're onto it. You're onto it. And just to touch on your first point about the books, if I pointed my camera around, you'd see my whole desk is littered with books. And I, I, they're like my friends. I, and I'm not, I don't know how it sounds lame or whatever, but these are the great teachers. You know, some of them are alive. Most of them are dead and gone. But without them, uh, the energy of them, just the way I perceive that energy, because I believe we create it all, right? It, 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 it does activate the muse. It's like being here when I'm talking, it also reminds me I'm not alone in this thinking. I've, I'm not just standing here, you know, just speaking out of my ass. I'm here to actually pay a debt of gratitude to these great teachers in these books that taught, that risked their lives, many of them you know, risk their lives were thrown in penitentiaries and incarceration and solitary confinement for exposing what they did. And I get the opportunity to sit and read these books. Many of them make my hands shake. That's how good they are, you know, and how deeply they've changed my life just from reading a few words. So for you to sit there and notice that I feel the same thing. And there's times where I'm going on podcasts. I don't plan what I'm going to say on purpose. Cause every time I try to plan something, it goes to shit. I just, even when I'm doing this series, believe it or not, I'm not just sitting there with this big mapped out plan of how these episodes are going to go. I just well, remix and- it like a DJ and just let it flow naturally. Right. 
and and I'm again I'm sorry to interject because I know you have something else to say, but I noticed that you do videos while you're driving. And I found that so fascinating because I talk about this a lot. When I was a delivery driver, I picked that job again, not trying to conform to society, but I had to make money in order to not be homeless. So I was like, oh, if I'm a delivery driver, I could just listen to podcasts all day. I'll get paid to listen to podcasts. I'm well, a PhD at the end. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. So, but I think there's something, you know, to driving and it's similar to martial arts because your body is engaged in something. It's obviously you know, a lot less stress inducing driving. I think it's a little more relaxing than, you know, f sparring or rolling on the mat. But, <laughs> but, you know, can you speak to that and why you chose to, to make those videos from your car? Is that just out of convenience or is there something about being on the road driving that gets you in that mindset? You know, that's a really, nobody's ever asked me this. And I, as I'm thinking about it, it kind of happened organically. Maybe it's part of it was convenience, but I, I actually, I loved it so much. And I, I realized that I would sit back sometimes and watch it to see if I said something stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I don't even know this guy. Like, who, what is that? Where did that come from? I don't logically remember learning this. How did I, it's like you were saying, when you're teaching, it comes from the heart, but you have to be in the right frequency field to maybe pick up on that bandwidth of energy that's coming through like a radio. You got to get the, the dial right before you get the frequency, right? So maybe the body is the dial. And if we dial it right, we're not just tapping into our brain. We're tapping into the source field. We're tapping into the force, you know, like, why not? Like, what, well, how crazy is that? Look at Rupert Sheldrake's thesis of the morphogenic field or Nassim Harriman's thesis on, he, he has a very similar one or many of these other great thinkers. It's built into the Shinto religions and the Buddhist traditions and, and even in elements of Christianity, this idea that you can call upon unseen forces when you're in the right setting, when you're healthy, when your spirit is good, when you're not too negative, when you're trained, when you're, you know, so there's like, so I know it's a big picture I'm painting, but just trying to answer this, the, when I get in my truck and I go for a drive, I'll do that. I've done that since I got my life, my driver's license. When I got my driver's license at 16, I was so happy. I'm like, I am free as a bird. I could wake up at midnight and go drive anywhere I want and go do whatever I want. And I love that freedom of just driving and hitting the road. And where I live right now in British Columbia, man, the drives here are just stunning. Like just the nature and the mountains and the sea stuff. And so when I drive, there's that, it's that calming and you just, the, the vehicle is moving. So then my mind is moving. And then I just, I just talk and drive. And actually I remember, I think it was cause I'd be having, I used to do a lot of road trips, a lot of driving. And I remember having some of the best conversations of my life with friends. And we'd just be sitting driving across or whatever. And you'd have hours of road ahead of you. You just talk, you just talk and you'd have the bet. I, I feel like we'd come up, we'd solve the world's problems in these conversations while we're driving. So there's something about the road trip energy. And then I started just doing it maybe out of convenience, but then people really liked it. And I got like a different side of myself in these things. So you'll actually see now on my Rockfin channel, I have a whole section called drive with Dave. So I almost made like a separate show. And it's usually when I'm on my drive to go get water, because I got to drive like an hour into town to go to this water store to get the proper reverse osmosis water. And so I go and 
I'm like, I got all this time. So this is a great time for me to record. And my, my truck has, it's pretty soundproof in there. So it's got a good sound. I just got to sit back. And, and so I just go and you get into a good flow. And as a martial artist, I remember the feeling of when you would be forcing yourself to train and forcing yourself to try to do stuff. And you're going against a guy who's in the flow. It's like, he's invincible. And then when you train with the same guy the next day, when he's on his off day and you're in your flow, you're the one. And it was a weird dynamic. And I'd be like, and it wouldn't matter the belt ranks. That's the other thing. It, this superseded belt ranks. Like you said, one day some blue belt is kicking my ass and the next day I'm beating up some fourth degree black belt. Like it's weird. So I knew there was something to it. And I think it all boils down to in order to get your mojo or your, what do you want to call it? The flow state. There's an art to learning about your very specific ingredients, the very specific elements that allow you to access your flow state. This is why I don't like teaching 12 step programs on this stuff is because it's like, it's a very unique process. Like if I told you my process, if I could even articulate it of getting into a flow state, it would seem so bizarre that I do certain weird things and position things differently in the, when I'm like, it, I don't even know how to say it, but I do it in, I don't even think about it. I just do these little things and then I get the best version of myself out there. And I've, I, I recommend everybody try to find their own way. And I think maybe that's what the dojo does for you. If you're in a good place, a good environment, good coaches, good teammates, even if you're just by yourself in, in their backyard, you can, because you're working with the body and the mind at the same time and your spirit, I believe you are actually creating a very unique pathway for yourself. And you're learning, Oh, I was up too late drinking beer on the couch and eating shit food. And then I woke up and tried to went to training and that didn't really work out to the flow state. So maybe I'll scratch that before training and do something else. And then you just, so what did Bruce Lee say? It, all knowledge is ultimately self-knowledge. When you crack that, all the subjects we're going to talk about are going to make sense as to why we go into it. I'm an explorer of this life. I'm here to explore. I'm not here to put definitive statements on things or pretend I know everything. I'm here to be humbled in, before the universe and be an explorer and just go look and see what's there. And when you have that sort of open spirit, it takes all the edge off and the pressure of what other people think. I could care less what people, I used to care what people think, but I killed that demon a long time ago, man. I don't care what people think. Most people aren't thinking. So why would we care about what they think? It, the, it's just be a part of that. And remember that everything we're learning about and talking about is ultimately reflection back to you. Even this talk we're having, Mark, you and I are both, and especially as a martial artist that takes notes and pays attention and follows and tracks well, like you are, you know, we're exchanging and relating and thinking and reorganizing. And that's a beautiful process that comes from, actually, it's so funny, people won't believe it, but it comes from sparring. It comes from training. It comes from kind of bleeding and sweating together is a unique thing with that, that you don't get anywhere else. And some people think it's like sadomasochistic, but it's not, it's like, there's an old statement in the warrior's tradition that goes, you know, you don't really know someone until you fight them. I've evolved that in my opinion to, you don't really know someone until you've trained with them. That way it's more of a sharing. We're not just trying to kill each other. And when you train with somebody, there's an, there's a, it's different than just, isn't it funny how we shake each other's hands? Like, we, where we hug each other as humans, like naturally, because we're trying to form a connection with another person. And that's, that's the first stage of connection. Well, the martial artist takes it to the next level and it's like, 
hey, let's go do some flow. Let's go work on some guard passes. Let's go work on some bow staff drills. Let's go like throw some darts at each other and see if we can dodge. I don't know. It's just, there's a different thing. And in that exchange, you're the obstacle that's in front of me so that I can learn about me and I'm the mirror to you. And in that process, we both upgrade. And if we have that spirit of wanting that, that I'm not trying to take from you and you're not trying to take from me, we're trying to both elevate it improves human relationship. It gets rid of, especially amongst men, that, that you know, edgy ego, chip on the shoulder, Texas-style shootout vibe of like, oh, are you trying to get on the hierarchy above me or you think you're better? It, it cuts through that bullshit immediately and it humbles you, but it also empowers you. And it's this cool thing that you'll never find anywhere else. Amen to that. And I, I agree with what you just said about the Texas shootout. That is, and I know you're up north, my grandparents are, are Canadian, so I, I have sort of my own cross-cultural influences. I know what you guys nice. are like up there. But there is this kind of American attitude of that hierarchy, exactly. And this like, well, we're going to have to shoot it out, you know. And mm. one thing that really bothered me as a young man, especially after I had already kind of, you know, peaked as a martial artist in the sense that, you know, as of right now, I'm really kind of a slouch. I haven't trained in a couple of years, but when I was at that point, I was disillusioned with professional mixed martial arts. No, you know, offense to anybody practicing. I'm sure each is their own unique case, but as a whole, I was really turned off because I saw the value that martial arts could bring to communities to the world mm -hmm. that at that same time I was seeing, you know, in my own neighborhoods, you know, people fighting, people getting killed in gunfights and all these things that are unnecessary. And I don't really think would exist if let's say in every middle school, there was a dojo, you know, and I know that's again, idealistic thinking, but if, if we lived in a, in a way where martial arts was integrated in the community, I don't know if, this sort of Texas shootout attitude would be so embedded in the psyche. And I think that's part of, you know, what this whole medical um, malpractice industry really rests on as well. This same sort of mal idea, this malady of the psyche. You know, I wonder, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? And, and martial arts as a medicine for, for the, for the nations. Oh, dude, you're, this is awesome. I'm going to be a new subscriber to your podcast. This is, you know what you're talking about, man. Yeah, I agree. I think that, hey, if there's football and soccer and baseball and cheerleading and now what is it, you know, critical race theory and we're getting rid of all, if all that shit can be in schools, why can't you have martial arts? I mean, there's a reason it's not, in my opinion. I mean, in Japan, you can actually get a degree in university for judo and they'll sponsor you and pay for your way to go to the Olympics and then they'll pay for the whole thing. And they produce some of the best martial artists on the planet, you know, and it's, it's, you know, there wouldn't be, what's the best way to put this? The reason why, let's just call it the, the controlling architects, the, the deep state, dark cabal, the whatever that we can talk about. Um, basically the predators in our midst, the, the intraspecies predators that have taken control of our institutions and are trying to guide the world wouldn't have any kind of a game to play if all of us, or at least a big majority of us, had the mindset of a warrior. And that doesn't mean 
that it's because we would always rise up and physically suppress them. It's literally like, this is a good time to bring in the cult discussion. Okay. So how I got into this cult of the medics film series that I'm working on, which by the way, people can check out the first seven chapters for free right now over at cultofmedics.com. I've got 12 chapters planned. It's an exploration of the dark history of the medical industrial complex and the occult history of the pharmaceutical industry and all of that. It's very deep, very dark, but also lots of good positive nuggets in there and a lot of warrior stuff in there too. And how I got to that point, it started with the martial art philosophy. It then led to an interest in criminal psychology. So some of my friends were in university studying criminal psychology. I actually knew some, I knew I grew up around a lot of police officers. I originally had wanted to be a police officer. I think that's a that's a typical thing for the typology of a warrior would be to go into a police or military role because you instinctively, that's where you go defend the, the gates, right? But nothing manifested for me to go down that road. I became an entrepreneur and a martial artist. And I thought, okay, I'll train these cops. <laughs> That'll be good. And then as I was talking to these guys and I was learning about how the criminal mind works, and I've always been very fascinated into the true crime investigative series stuff. It opened up a long time ago, maybe about 10 years ago to these cults. Cause that was like the next level. Like it's, it's one thing to say, Oh, the son of Sam killer or any of these guys are just a, a wacko. He had a, his, his parents beat him as a kid or he was traumatized by abuse. And then it produced this psychopath or however people want to look at it. There's definitely lots of that. But when you start finding out that there's like connections between the Manson cult and the process church of the final judgment cult run by Robert de Grimston and the heaven's gate cult and the son of Sam killings. And you realize there's a whole cult level thing behind a lot of that stuff that we can get into. I went, wow, that's, that is some next level shit, man. I want to learn about what makes that. Cause I have, that is so foreign to me. I, the, I'm so allergic to cult. I hate it. I, I even started leaving the dojos and just training with buddies in the garage with YouTube videos. Cause I was just so sick of all the big, you know, hierarchy bullshit. And so I, I was like, okay, well, what makes a cult? Like what makes a Walter Applewhite want to start a heaven's gate cult where he's going to teach everybody a bunch of nonsense and then tell them, Hey, if we just poison each other and we go through this process, we're going to be able to piggyback on Hale Bob's comet when it comes through and it'll pull us into the ninth dimension above human. And that became the foundational belief. And these people believed it so fervently, they all committed mass suicide. And I hope, I hope they reached the ninth dimension, I guess. But you start, what, what motivated a Walter Applewhite or any of these other guys to even build a cult? There must've been a big void in them. There must've been something missing from them or they're just straight up psychos or they're paid by the CIA. We're not going to get into that. But, um, then you go, well, what if we stop focusing on all the cult leaders, which is where most cult researchers and authors focus? What if we ask the question, well, what is it in the cult followers that's pulling them in to believe people like this? Like, so there's a void in us too. And trust me, they've been blinding the masses with this cult-like vibe for centuries and using it as a way of manipulating the masses so that they can take control of land resources and our wealth and they can plunder us while we're all distracted in how are we going to get to heaven? It's crazy. So you get into this question 
it got, I guess it was for me, comparative religion and mythology that dropped me into that. And then this question about criminal psychology, and then it moved to cults. And I started looking into it. And funny enough, I was looking into this deeply right before the pandemic happened. I was working on a show called The Unexplained with William Shatner. And I was going back and forth. And they did an episode on cults. They wanted to do the deep, dark cults, you know? So they brought me down and we, we did a bunch of shoots and learned, and I was bringing all my research basically. And as soon as I did that show, I realized, well, they're going to do what Hollywood does, which is record for seven hours and then put 30 seconds of what you said in the show. And I went, Hey, that was great. It was perfect. You know, I understand, but I wanted to do something more in depth and show people the whole picture. So I created a series, a podcast series. So it was just like, I'm sitting doing four hours straight of just like slideshows and playing videos and reading quotes and just talking. And I just, it was just raw, you know, but then I'm like, well, I want to build something that's more documentary style, you know? And right before I started planning to do cult of the medics in 2018, 2019, I said, okay, well, you know what? Maybe this isn't the right timing for this. And I waited and I'm glad I did because then 2019, 2020, the pandemic happened. And so I, I was fresh on that lens of both the warrior tradition research and the cult research. And when this stuff started happening and I saw the way they were conducting the messaging about the pandemic, just the messaging alone, the symbols, the phrases, the headlines, the fear, the wait for the savior, the, you know, it was like, no doctor can speak out against that guy. It was just like, whoa, this is really culty. The more I watched it, the more I saw cult blueprint written all over this thing. And I also saw the way people were reacting to the information, which was mass formation psychosis, which is one of the things that happens within a cult, by the way. That's a documented thing. And I went, oh my God, it's a cult. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, well, this is, this is, when I have to do cult of the medics. So cult of the medics is a hybrid between all of those things we're talking about. It was my awakening through the warrior tradition mixed in to the research I did on criminal psychology cults, and then like secret societies and geopolitics and all that. And then the pandemic and the medical. And I went, what if I put all of these puzzle pieces on the table at the same time? And then there's even a sort of paranormal element that's going to creep into it later. And I'm like, what happens if we just, I've got all this research, I've done all these separate studies. What if I do with these subjects, what I did with my martial art practice, which was, I started in karate, classically trained Shotokan karate, went into some boxing, learned from very, very technical, strict Irish boxers, then went into kickboxing, trained with like Jean-Yves Theriot, basic, but strong styles. And then went into all these styles and I learned all these things. And instead of doing what all the other guys were doing, which was, well, kickboxing is better than boxing and jujitsu is better than karate and Kung Fu is better than Taekwondo. Instead of that, I went, well, what if we do it all? What if we mix it all and bring the best of everything and create your own style? And I said, well, what if I do that with my research? What happens? Well, that's what cult of the medics is. Now <laughs> I definitely, you know, I need people to go and check that out, but I need to understand what mass formation psychosis is because you, you hit on that amongst many other points, which I wish we could circle back on. Obviously you've done that work, 
in Cult of the Medics. And I know this sort of conversation, we're in the flow. We don't need to go and take the details. You've already done that work. It's in those presentations. So I encourage people to go and do that. But can you help us understand mass formation psychosis? Because I think this kind of hits on the original question that I asked you and, and really what's going on in our society at large to some degree. And there was also another thing that you mentioned within that, which is like the psychology that would lead someone into becoming a part of a cult. That is not, you know, your average martial artist is not going to fit into that psychological typology. I just don't, That's right. you know, I wouldn't see that in a million years because of all the things we've already established, you know, the determination, the high level of self-esteem that's been proven. You know, it's not a, a manufactured ego that our society tries to sort of coin as cool, you know, no, no, no. As a martial artist, you don't brag, you don't boast, you don't bully, you just are. And I think that's something that a cult can't penetrate. It's just impossible. But our, our, our society already operates like a cult. You know, and, and that's where I think this conversation becomes so interesting and relatable because people see even in something maybe not like martial arts where they're like, oh, yeah, I am kind of like being led astray in that area, you know, so kind of gave you a couple questions to respond to. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, man. Good. You said some really key things I'll flesh out if I can. So first of all, mass formation psychosis. That's just a term that got popular really recently. It was actually, I'm trying to remember the name of the academic. He was a professor from Europe. I'm trying to remember where in his name. I'm, I apologize for that. He was the first one I heard mass formation psychosis from. He came out last year and he did an interview on some show and he started talking about what was going on within society that was being bred through the process of fear and propaganda from the media over this virus and that the byproduct of that, whatever people's thoughts are of it, we can talk about that. It produced a certain identifiable characteristic in the psyche of the general population. And I think the evidence is everywhere where even just the thing about the masks or the, the, uh, the compliance with the rules. And are you walking in through Costco where the arrows are pointing or not? And, you know, it, it was built off of triggering everybody's internal anxiety over a threat. And this is an art form of how to take advantage. There's an art form to this that's known very, very well amongst the intelligence agencies of the world, the governments of the world. Trust me when I say this, they have, the psychological manual on the desk of how you tick at, at a deep psychic level. They have that mastered inside and out. They've spent billions of dollars in research programs for a long time. And that's just in modern times. When you get into how ancient this knowledge has been of these elite classes and not all elite classes are just evil because they're elite. It's just that Sadly, the people that want power over everything else gravitate to the top because they don't have the empathy that would stop them from crushing the skulls they need to crush to get to those places. So you end up with these cult leaders who themselves don't drink the same Kool-Aid as you do. Like a Jim Jones isn't going to, well, maybe Jim Jones, I can't, yeah, he probably, but most of these cult leaders, they sell you what they want to sell you to keep you in the cult, not 
because they believe their own stuff. You know what I mean? And so mass formation psychosis has been known well before it came, became popular. And it was actually popular when Dr. Robert Malone went on Joe Rogan and said it. That's when it became popular. Then it was like trending on Twitter and everybody's like, oh, that's what it is. Because I think the human mind needs to name a thing. Once you name it and you give it a thing, people go, oh, now I understand it. See, before I was doing shows from the beginning of the pandemic, showing these psychological tendencies and the mass mind, uh, the propaganda, the way it worked before I heard that. And it was my good friend, Michael Desarian, who I do the Unslave podcast with that pointed a lot of this out to me. And he's, we started talking about the work of people like Gustav Le Bon, who wrote a book a hundred years ago on basically what he called the, no, the, what did he call it? He called it the crowd, the mind of the crowd. So like the, the, when there's a crowd formed of people, of individual units coming together to go cheer for a hockey game or whatever, just on a basic level, there's this sort of other consciousness that forms around the minds of everybody and puts them in a hive state, a hive mind state. And actually concerts and a lot of these theatrical productions are sort of designed to encourage everybody to just sort of leave their individual mind for a minute and their critical thinking and just absorb yourself in the music and absorb yourself in the thing. And there wouldn't be anything wrong with that on a basic level. If that knowledge of how to do that wasn't also used by these dark magicians who know how to pull your puppet strings and get you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. And that's the difference. If somebody's, if you're doing stuff because it's, you know, oh, okay, that's, that makes sense. That's one thing. But if you're, being sort of programmed through propaganda and sophisticated hypnotic techniques that are well-known, then you're behaving in a way that's contradicting your own belief system. And what that does is it puts your mind into a state of cognitive dissonance where you're holding two beliefs at the same time and believing them, even though they contradict each other directly. So you're in a contradictory mental state. And it's very hard for the average person to even know how to get themselves out of it because there's elements of your subconscious mind that you don't, you're not really aware of. That's like the background that is, is driving that. Right. And so they don't put the input into your conscious mind, these hypnotists, they put the suggestion in your subconscious mind. And then all of a sudden you're behaving differently and you don't consciously see it or know why. So it's a very, this is a very deep science that is well-known I could prove to you that it's, it exists, but the question would become, are they using it against the masses? And then I would have to go through cult of the medics and show you, yep, they are hundred percent. So mass formation psychosis, another way that think about like Edward Bernays, right? The guy that wrote the book propaganda, he talks about something called the public mind. And there's a lot of quotes that could bring up from him where he's, he, he was working for these governments and these different organizations and roundtables to provide the psychological manual to these governments as to how to keep the population under control and to get them thinking in one, one rhythm. So there's no diversity of thought. And the same people that are selling you diversity, diversity is our strength. They themselves don't believe in diversity of thought though. They just try to use that as the way to get you in. In the end, it's a lie because they want you in compliance with the rules of the cult and you do not deviate and you don't dare challenge and you don't dare question or you'll be banished from the cult or you will lose your privileges or we will attack you or whatever. So I saw those dynamics everywhere. I was glad to see some high level academics 
pointed out. Even Jordan Peterson has started to point it out in Canada. And then we've been talking about it on the Unslaved podcast and deal for in detail for about six, seven years about how this works. And so I just tell people, I'm like, look, there's so much more behind that media, that the entertainment media, the news media, there's so much more behind it. So much more knowledge of what colors you're attracted to, what flicker rates your brain loves, what types of words and terms and symbols you're attracted to. They have this nailed and it's all in the subconscious world. So when you're watching a show, and nothing wrong with watching a show, and let, but you should be aware of the dynamic that there's there's a hidden side to what you're being told. There's messaging being dropped into you at all times about how you should be behaving, how you shouldn't be behaving, what you should be believing, what you shouldn't be believing, who you should be respecting, who you shouldn't be respecting. They're giving you the rules of the cult of, of what they want in a subconscious way so that you can't see it. And that's why when you try to tell people, Hey, did you notice the ads? They're putting all this sexual stuff in Disney symbolism, or they're putting all these ancient astrological symbols all over your cars. You notice all the car symbolism. Where does that come from? What about, you know, this, so they're using it on one level just to sell some products, but they're also selling ideas. And so the, when they start bringing fear into that equation, I know it's disingenuous. So when I see that, when I see the media, it, let's just go with the idea that this whole pandemic was everything they said it was, and there was a virus and it was an accident and we had to deal with it. They did not deliver that message through the media in a way that would keep people sane during the process of them supposedly trying to save you from the threat. Instead, the messaging of the media, it wasn't the virus that did this. Okay. I want to make that very clear. COVID-19 didn't cause mass formation psychosis. The messaging from the media and the government did because it was laced with deep subconscious messaging that pings the ancient trauma of our psyche that's embedded in all of our psyche. And it also pings the current trauma of our own lives, which is, hey, you're not an expert to Mark. You don't really know about health and science. So you have to listen to the experts and trust the science. And if you don't trust the science, and when I say the science, I'm talking about selected science that isn't science because they're saying that science, it's, it's a doctrine. They're giving you a one seasoned view of something and it's layered with fear. So if you don't follow this blueprint, you're going to die and you're going to kill people and you're going to be responsible for mass murder. And you're like, so that that triggers a certain dynamic in people's minds. That was the root attack on the psyche. And then it drove people mad because fear and anxiety where there's no immediate solution will drive people mad. You can go study like the Stanford prison experiments and some of these other experiments, Milgram experiments. They've got this dialed in to an art. And so I just wanted to tell people, I'm warning you who we're dealing with here. And I will show you their background. I will show you their track record. I'll show you the contradictions. I'll show you. And then I'll show you the flip side of good people, good doctors, good health practitioners, good psychologists, good journalists, trying to give you positive feedback and positive messaging to, you don't have to be afraid. This is a 99% survivable virus. You just need to build up your immune system. Fear actually lowers your immune system response. So why would they be constantly messaging Fear, 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 24-7 with the carrot on the stick of, well, just wait for the solution to come out. It, it, how does that help people's health? It doesn't. 
So I just tell people, just be careful with what you're buying into out there because they're trying to get you ultimately to wrap this up. They want you in emotive thinking. And here's where it gets sticky because your emotion is very intuitive and it's very much a beautiful part of what you are as a package of a human being. Okay. Your emotion can speak to you in many different ways, but it's like that child that, you know, you, you want to encourage freedom, but you do need to put some constraints on so that they don't, you know, walk across the street while the car is coming. There's a, there's a certain reigning in that has to happen so that you don't let that run the rule, the kingdom. If you suppress your logic and raise the emotion as the dominant force, then you are programmable because then they just have to feed you emotion, emotive signals all the time. And you won't think past it because the emotion will be linked to the action as opposed to, wait a minute, you said this and that, and then that, oh, logically that doesn't make any sense, right? If you shut that part off, you're open for attack. And that's what all these cults did. That's what Mao Zedong and Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin did. That's what they did. That's what we see politicians all over the world doing. The, it's the way they do it. It's the way they talk. It's the, the reading a script, the voice tone, the voice inflection, the, the, the words they use, the, the imaging, the, the saturation, the oversaturation of the only crisis in the world is COVID. That's it. There's nothing else. Don't worry about cancer rates, heart attack rates, type 2 diabetes from all the food we're feeding you. Don't worry about the death rates to all the chemical cocktails we're selling you. Don't worry about human trafficking. Don't worry about any of that stuff. The only thing is this thing. When that hyper um, focus happens around one thing and it's all based in fear, you can be pretty much 100% positive what we're dealing with is programming and propaganda because they're asking you to stop thinking logically and to think from a fear base and that to me is a massive red flag. And that's what kicked it off right, right away. When I saw the way the media was reporting this stuff and the way the World Health Organization was signaling it, I went, all right, I just, I know what we're dealing with here and I'm going to investigate this. And I'm glad I did. And since then, I've produced uh, boatloads of interviews and videos and stuff covering it from every angle. And I'm still doing it. And I'm not saying I got all the answers, but there are brilliant minds that have warned us about this stuff in the past. And when we put it all together, I think it helps make sense of everything that's been going on this past few years. Absolutely. And, you know, if we even look at something like the camera, audio equipment, these are all military technologies. They were maybe innovated by some civilians, some scientists, but the cameras that were in working order first the military had them, you know, the microphones, all of that equipment, the military was right on the scene first with all of that. And we see this sort of shift, you know, here and now the propaganda becoming all, you know, I mean, questionable, really. It's almost creating that dissonance that you described in the populace where some people see what's happening on TV and they're led to believe one thing, another group of people see one thing they're led to believe another. And then a small portion of people see it and they question what they're looking at. And I think that's mm -hmm. who we've been focusing on for the majority of our conversation, that minority. And I don't think that it's always martial artists. I don't think that's the only way to, you know, forge this mindset, but it is, 
this Hegelian dialect that they're pushing us into, you know, pushing us to either, you know, go against it, but it's this controlled sort of dead end, fenced in sort of opposition to what is supposedly the, you know, mainstream. And then the people who are mainstream see this opposition as, you know, the end of the world. And it's just division that they're creating. I'm wondering, you know, with your research, trying to trace things back, do you have some examples of, you know, where this has happened maybe in more recent history? I know on uh, our last episode, we talked to a guest who showed us newspaper articles from 1918 talking about revolts against flu masks, talking about people who were, you know, not going to work with their flu masks on and getting fired. And I'm like sitting there with my jaw dropped like, wow, only 100 years ago, this cycle, you know, was it was going through the same sort of vibration that it is now. You know, it makes you think maybe history is cyclical, but have you seen that yourself in your research? Yeah, it's a good observation because the ability to recognize patterns would be another trait of the martial artist, right? And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at patterns of behavior in different contexts maybe, but when you see the same kind of blueprint and it's like we keep, it's a vicious circle. Everybody talks about it. Why do we keep repeating history over and over again? Well, because history is, we're all participating in our time that we're alive. And no matter where you go, there are humans. And if there are humans, we're repeating patterns of psychological behavior. And that's why we keep seeing history repeating. And so when we understand that, that's how we crack it and we can change the rhythm and, and maybe create a different history book than the one that is currently being written, which is my hope, but numerous examples, brother, numerous. I just started with the cults because I wanted to show here's the pattern of behavior. Here's the pattern of manipulation and look at the result, right? And it's over and over and over and over again. And that's just in those freaky deaky cults we're talking about. Well, then when you get into the political cults, you know, how did they get all of Germany to stand by and watch mass murder and, and all of that. Well, getting everybody into a mass formation psychosis, collective hive mind. And, you know, propaganda is very, very effective as Joseph Goebbels will tell you. He tells you all the time in a lot of the writings that he left, you can go read the documents from the Nuremberg trials and tell you what they, what they knew and how they did it. And they even captured a lot of those Nazis out of Germany, just operation paperclip and brought them into places like the US, Canada, Argentina, et cetera, to continue the science that those guys were bringing out. And I bet you the, I'll, I guarantee you, they're still employing those same techniques because they know they needed it as a, as a way of learning how to continue that project of controlling the masses. Um, so there's many patterns. You can even go back to the Spanish flu. And I started showing studies to people that the vast majority of people didn't die from the Spanish flu itself. They died from viral pneumonia. And guess what some of the doctors have been talking about when it comes to all this universal masking of people 24-7 for two years straight is that it's creating viral pneumonia in people and staph infection because you're breathing in your own microbacteria and CO2 and all of that constantly. And the, the mask becomes dampened within the first 15 to 20 minutes. And then you're just breathing and recycling that same restricted airflow back through the passageway the secretory IgA gets activated in the whole system. And then you're constantly like, just, you know, you're, you're actually giving, you're making yourself sick and they know this. That's actually why 
people would always go, well, they've always worn masks in China and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, but trust me, you don't want to live like they do over there. I can even remember some cold winters where I would put my scarf over my face and do exactly that, like spit on it and be all gross and frozen and probably mucusy as well because I was a dirty kid. And then for the next week, I would be sick and, and people would chalk it up to the weather and say, oh, you got cold because you're outside in the weather. But having Canadian grandparents, I always knew. I'm like, no, no, no. These people are very healthy. They grew up on a farm and the cold, They like my grandmother, she's still alive, 95 years old, and she loves the cold, you know, like she'll go out in the cold if it's sunny. Now, I mean, she's a little more sensitive than she used to be. But when she was in her 80s, she was walking in the snow, you know, so I I think there's something to to that. that. Yeah, to add to that, just to bring up something real quick here is during the whole trucker convoy in Canada, thousands upon thousands of Canadians from all over the country filtered in and out of Ottawa for a period of two and a half weeks, no masks, mass gatherings, singing, loving, speaking moistly, as Trudeau likes to say, and just hugging each other and hanging out with homeless people that shockingly didn't die during the pandemic, which is weird. And the the whole thing was just, and then it turned into this happening, the entire country, and there was no massive outbreak. And then you go to Sweden and Florida and Texas. Florida and Texas have been wide open for months doing NASCAR events, UFC events, all kinds. Did everybody die? You know, and they're not wearing any masks. So you start looking at these things logically and you go, well, there's got to be something wrong with it. But the reason I was bringing up the Spanish flu was to tell people a lot of the foundations of thought that they gave you, the media and this medical cult and the authorities and the government, a lot of the foundations that they built their argument upon and their whole thesis and their whole protocol, it's all nonsense. You could take it apart from the bottom to the top because they're going to tell you, well, look, the masks work during the Spanish flu. So that's what we're going to do. Well, there was a massive movement of doctors and experts during the 1918 Spanish flu that were writing letters. And you, you've got these letters. You can read them. They're writing books. They were starting movements of resistance, just like we have now with these frontline doctors. It was then there was, I've got p- photos from the masked people saying, we have to arrest all the anti-maskers. <laughs> this is in 1918. And here we are today with the same crap, right? And then if those people ever were to have been told the truth behind what happened there, and I won't digress, let's just, I'll let people go and say, oh, trust me, there's an alternative view to that, okay? They would realize that those protocols didn't suppress it at all. In fact, a lot of these massive diseases came down in a natural decline before any policies were even put in place that they now say and credit were what solved it, right? And you find this endlessly. And I've got hordes of high-level doctors to back this up. This isn't just me saying this, okay? I've got boatloads of sources on this from very high-level people talking about that. So it just makes sense. I mean, if you're breathing in moist, recycled air all day, every day, and then you're uh, hanging around with people that are touching their mask. And how many times are people adjusting their mask all day? Did you know that the actual recommendation for all the masking was that if you're going to, first of all, they, there was a reason by all the science prior to this pandemic that they didn't do universal masking of healthy people. And it's because it causes sickness. That's exactly why it's written in the studies. I've cited them endlessly as have many other doctors and experts, but they ignored it. They changed 
They changed so many definitions in science. It, it'll blow your mind. They changed the definition of a pandemic before this pandemic. Did anybody know that? They changed the definition from the definition that had been in place since the Spanish flu. They changed it a year or so before 2020. Then they changed the definition of a vaccine. I've got the screenshots. I was watching it happen live where during the pandemic, they actually, the World Health Organization changed the definition of vaccine on their website. So there was the standard definition four criteria. It must stop transmission of the virus. It must provide sterilizing immunity to that virus. And it must have a net positive benefit overall. And it must have a low death and injury rate. It must be below this percentile for it to be considered an actual vaccine. That was the four criteria. Guess what? All of those were gone and replaced with a totally new description that left it more open. And I wonder, isn't that interesting? And so they basically, this was the number one complaint. This isn't my complaint. This is the complaint I'm telling your audience that was given to me by the doctors that I interviewed and the people that wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine and the people that wrote medical journals. They were the ones telling me this. I was just the messenger, right? And then I got censored everywhere. And now they've been validated. It's absolutely proven. It's irrefutable. So, you know, you just get into it and you go, well, well then I guess the big question that starts to happen for people, because there's so many avenues we can bring in and details, but just in general, people are going to ask this question and Mark, they're going to ask you and Mark, this is why your family thinks you're crazy, even though you're not, is because they can't get over the motive. That's the question you're always going to, no matter what you bring, that's an alternative perspective, or you're saying, oh, the government's lying or Pfizer's just trying to make money and they don't care if they kill you. Here's all their criminal track records. When you start pulling that stuff out, people go, oh, it couldn't be. That's ridiculous. They laugh it off because that's actually a psychological defense mechanism. Did you know that? Like laughter can be the best medicine. We have a humorous side, but it can also be a defensive mechanism to mask trauma, right? And to, you know, because if you can't answer the argument, what do you do? You laugh it, you point ad hominems, you attack people. That's why in the world of both scientific and philosophical debate, they actually made a list of rules for, it's like in martial arts, there's the rules of combat, the rules of war, the rules of debate. And the top rule is appeals to authority. Nope. And ad hominem attacks. Nope. That's not scientific thinking. Yet, what do we see that we've had from the officials, the medical officials and the government officials against top level world renowned experts in their fields that outrank your government officials in science and outrank a lot of those chumps working at the World Health Organization and the CDC? Why would they? attack them and basically create an environment where they're basically creating medical heretics like during the inquisition. And actually that's the book that people need to read. It's actually called confessions of a medical heretic by Dr. Robert Mendelssohn who was written in the 1970s. And he came out and he said, guys, it's a big cult. It's a big cult. Don't go to see the doctor. 90% of what they're doing, 90% of what I've been trained as to how to deal with disease could be thrown into the dustbin. We're actually causing more harm than good, us doctors. That's what he said. I didn't say it. And so I went, wow, they're recreating the medical heretic thing where you got your Robert Malone's, Peter McCullough's in Canada. It's Dr. Byron Bridal, Roger Hodkinson, all these guys where they're the media and everybody's censoring them and fact-checking them and, and taking their YouTubes down and, 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 and not giving them even a seat at the table of discussion. Yet these are 
you don't get any higher than these people in the ranking. These are like the 10th degree black belts in their field. And yet they're just told they're all, they're all just shills and quacks by people that aren't, are like yellow belts. It's amazing. And to me, that's, that's, that's the mark of cult level thinking. And so this is what's amazing, but the motive thing. Okay. So people will still come back to it. Why though? I can't, why? Well, this brings up the question of evil. This brings up that question that nobody wants to talk about, the nature of human evil, which is something that the minute you get into criminal psychology in the world of cults, now you're into the, the deeper, I guess it would be the epistemological question, to use an ugly word, of evil. And the fact that I brought this up, I think, in chapter four of my series, I put a little section, a little homage to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote The Gulag Archipelago and, and a book called A Warning to the West, where he was warning us about all this stuff that's happening. And he said something really interesting because he, this guy lived in the gulags of Russia, all right? And he watched, actually his book, Gulag Archipelago, is what woke up the world to what was really going on in Russia. And he said, it would be nice if we could just point the finger up the hill identify the, the evil ones, and then route them out. But the problem is good and evil as a potential run through the heart of every human being. So you can cut the head off one tyrant only to have him replaced a minute later. So we have to, he's basically was seeing in his experience, the solution is not political. The solution is individual. The solution is psychological and spiritual. And it means you have to deal with your own, the battle of those two wolves. You know that story of the battle of the two wolves? One is truth, honesty, goodness, justice, virtue, righteousness. And then the other is doubt, fear, all the things that lead to the path of what we call evil. You know, it, which wolf wins the fight? Well, it's the one you feed. And to me, that's why I went, oh my God. That's why the martial art tradition in its pure form needs to make a return because it actually teaches you on a practical level how to fight that war inside of you, inside of your own being, and to come out empowered and to have the self-esteem. That if you don't have that proper self-esteem, and I'm not using self-esteem in the sort of typical modern part, I'm talking in deep, like a Nathaniel Brandon level. This guy, go look up Nathaniel Brandon and read his definition of self-esteem. That's a different level. That is a, to me, that's a manual. There's a book called the, the Six Pillars of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon. There's a, you can listen to the audio book on free for YouTube just to look it up. It'll change your life. I give it to everybody. And I say, it's actually, Nathaniel Brandon was not a martial artist at all. He was a psychotherapist. He was a colleague of Ayn Rand. He, he came out as a philosopher and he wrote this book on what a real self-esteem makeup is. It's chapter and verse, everything you're learning in the warrior tradition. It's amazing. And so it means the principles are universal. And it means it's also the solution manual. So the solution manual isn't necessarily, let's get Justin Trudeau out of there. Well, we have to do that. Okay, let's be honest. But that's not the end game. The end game is to upgrade the minds of each individual that makes up this thing we call society so that we don't get led down the garden path and deceived into this to tyranny anymore. It has to be in us. And the question of evil is the, is something that most people are not equipped to deal with because they've been given the religious version of it, which is just, I, I won't spend all this time debunk because it's just, I mean, they've got good things. I don't want to not, it's actually, I'm, I'm grateful to the religions of the world for even asking these questions, but it's been this discussion of where the source of it is. 
is really, really deep. And it makes me think of that bit from Yoda in Star Wars. I was just watching recently with my girls where he's talking about how fear is the path to the dark side. Fear. Because he said, because fear leads to a dark anger and that dark anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering. And that's the path to evil. The path to evil starts with fear. So all that people that are in positions of power who are themselves evil, and I don't use that word facetiously, I mean literally evil, meaning they've lost the connection to that divine spark of humanity within them. They've sold their soul, so to speak, and they are now working only uh, for their own interest and not caring what happens to others. So they're producing the mind of a sociopath or a psychopath. And what's the result of thinking and operating like that? Well, you become a force that's operating against nature and against humanity, and you commit acts of evil because the word evil is just the word live spelled backwards. So it's the inversion, right? So when we know that, and we can spot that tendency in ourselves because it starts with fear, then we can stop universal evil, right? Because you start with you. And look at the evil, I would call it, that's being done one against another, family against family, friend against friend, because they were told something that made them afraid. And then from that fear, they lost parts of their humanity and started treating people that didn't see things the way they did in a subhuman way to the point where people, Mark, people have called for my death in my friend circles. People have actually told me, I hope you die. I'm like, why? Because I'm telling you that masks are bullshit and you got to start reading some real medical science here and that this is all a con, what you're being told. You're, you think I need to die? Like, just because I disagree with you? Well, that statement is coming from somebody that previously I had high respect for, long relationships with, but it's coming from where? It's coming from their fear. That's where it started. So it's, that's the root. The seed is fear. So if the seed of evil is fear, what tradition answers the question of fear and breeds courage and self-esteem is the warrior tradition. And there are many other traditions as well. There's lots of knowledge, the sum total of human knowledge. There's great, brilliant minds that can help repair this damage. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just got to stop listening to these liars and criminals in our government, in our media, in our medical system, in our education system, and other places as well, and start listening to that voice within that is, I believe, your direct Wi-Fi connection to what we've all called God and Tao and universe and soul and skyst. It's all within all of us. And it's your fear that blocks you from connecting to that. It blocks you. Think about it just practically as a martial artist, Mark. If you go on the mat and we're going to spar and let's say you approach that session with fear of maybe looking bad or making a mistake and then you overestimate my ability and then you bring that into the sparring match, it would be a totally different result for you than if you brought in, I'm open to anything that happens. I am not afraid to lose. I am not afraid because lose, there's no such thing as losing in the warrior's mind. There's only opportunities for growth, right? There is no such thing as that. So you come in with the spirit of, I want to learn something here. I want to get better here. So if I win, great. If I lose, great. I'll learn either way. So I'm not afraid anymore. You're going to outperform your previous self. So we practice in the dojo, the solution that could literally save the world.
Agreed, man. And you took me, you did it again. You took me back to sophomore year of high school on the wrestling mat. And, you know, you can't see this from this perspective, but I've been a tall, lanky person my whole life. I'm six, eight, right? So Holy I was shit. in, I was in the 152 weight class when I was a, a sophomore wrestler. So I was wrestling guys that were five foot tall, built stocky, you know, at 160 pounds or 50 pounds at that height, you know, they're pretty stocky. But for me, I'm just like this tall, skinny guy. So I had an advantage over all my opponents, but my biggest opponent was myself, was my own fear because I would get in my head and I would look at my opponent. I would think, oh man, like he's got, you know, he's stronger than me or whatever it was. And it wasn't until... I was a senior, actually became the captain of my wrestling team that I realized like that exact mindset is I don't need to care what's going to happen as soon as I, as soon as I hit that mat, you know, I'm going to shut that part of my mind off and do what I do, you know, pick the ankle, go for the, the cradle, you know, whatever my, my trick was that I thought I could get on this guy cross face i used to love to cross face people has a little bit of anger but but yeah you know that there's something there's something to that and i think you know wrestling is is one of those more specialized within martial artists you know has a more collegiate respect you see that a lot like my cousin a state champion wrestler he's gone on and had a a great career for himself and a, a huge inspiration for me there's something that, you know, I really want to touch on for maybe the third time today is that there's something about martial arts that creates a higher level of a human being. And that's not to put anyone else down, but when you go under, you, you undergo that process for yourself, you are, are naturally, you know, taking a step up and becoming a higher level of human being. And I think, you know, that whole, throughout that whole final piece that you just gave us, I was thinking like, I got to ask him like, what's the solution? What's the solution? And then it dawned on me like, no, we're talking about the solution this whole time. It's martial arts, you know, and I've probably put it off for far too long. I told my, my, my Sifu when he was on the show that I would come train with them. I still haven't, but they're wearing masks. They're at least they were in the gym and I'm not about that. I'm not going to train. Yeah, good. With the mask don't, on. don't go train with the masks. Anybody yeah. that's training martial arts with masks and making their students train with a mask. Come see me, bro. <laughs> in a good way and a loving way, because right. that's nonsense. What, right. what I love what you're talking about. And, and I want to tell people, even if you're not the kind of person that wants to physically train the martial arts, you know, I, I recommend it. I mean, we're talking about health here, right? To achieve health, health is an inside job. Okay. Health is not something where you can just stick a mask on it and inject it and give it pills and cut it out with surgery and suddenly you're healthy. In emergency scenarios, you can save your life. But in health, to build up health, that is a daily choice that you make. That's a lifestyle. It's not something you can outsource to someone else either, which is what everybody does, at least in this Western civilization that we're in at this point in time. You know, that's a big point of contention with me and my family. Obviously, over the past two years, that's been accelerated and exaggerated. But way before this pandemic, pandemic, I was telling my grandparents, you know, 
I don't know if you need to go see the doctor for that. You see, you know, there are other ways to deal with that, but they are so scared to go outside of what they had been taught is the way to take care of their health by outsourcing it to some expert that they're incapable of doing that inside work. And I, I mean, phrasing right. it that way is so hits right on the, uh, the head, you know, like health is attacking you too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it tells you why they're attacking you because there's this instinct in humans to become tribalistic, especially in times of stress and, and chaos and whatever. And there's a certain subsection of the population that leans towards the wisdom of the ancients, which would be when there's mass hysteria afoot over some crisis, that's the time to just walk away. And that's your cabin in the woods moment to observe because like you were talking about previous examples of things. Have you ever heard of the dancing plague of the Middle Ages? I've heard about it. I haven't looked into it enough to recall many details, but it's one of those things that almost sounds like what you're describing with this mass formation of a psychosis. It's 100%. It's, it's actually, actually one of the source pieces to the theory that there was this plague, I can't remember, 1400s or something, and these women just started dancing, and then they just didn't stop. Then they danced, they literally danced themselves to death, if you can believe it, because they didn't eat. They just, it, it became like they caught, it was like a broken record that couldn't stop playing and it just overworked themselves. And then other people started to join in and it actually spread. But you, you can't have anybody come in and go, oh, it was because it was a virus that was flying around and they caught it by inhaling it or something. This was a psychological virus that happened and there's even another entry that you can just go look up even on wikipedia called hysterical contagion mass hysterical contagion that's the that's the psychological definition of it okay and they give examples and i pulled this out at the beginning of the pandemic just to say hey uh, just watch out for this so hysterical contagion was where they did some studies and they saw that in this corporate environment, they did a study back in the 90s where someone came in with a flu and they had some pretty vicious symptoms. I guess they kept, you know, and then they got sent home and then everybody were worried that they were all going to get the flu. And so I think only a few people ended up testing positive for flu and the rest of the people that started exhibiting symptoms, they actually exhibited physical symptoms and they had to like shut the office down because they thought there was a massive flu outbreak. But it turned out only like 5% of the people actually had any kind of illness. Everybody else, it was all a psychological projection that manifested in physical symptoms. That's in the, that's in the actual hysterical contagion. So they actually called it that saying there's a psychological virus in humanity that can happen, that can manifest. It's like, think of mass hypnosis. When you go to a hypnotist, a stage hypnotist show, they're fun to go to, whatever. And I did an experiment on myself where I went to one and I said, I'm not going to get hypnotized. This guy's not going to hypnotize me. And of course it didn't work. And then another time I went on the stage and I'm like, I'm going to let this thing, see if this works. I'm going to let this guy, I'm going to follow the cues. And it worked. So it showed there's a choice in the process. So, so take that Sam Harris. <laughs> Anyways. So I, I went and I realized, oh, so this guy can stand in front of an entire audience of thousands of people and he can actually install a hypnotic suggestion into the subconscious of everybody sitting there that all come from diverse backgrounds and different opinions. And he can make them all act as one. 
that's magic. That's true magic. And it could be a positive thing. I mean, hey, there's positive uses for hypnosis, right? For healing and getting into past trauma and helping that. But <laughs> you think that can't be weaponized? And do you think they didn't do more experiments on how to help excel accelerate that using all these chemicals and the cues and the symbolism? So that's why I tell people, if you're worried about the, just a kind of bit on the motive part here of why people would do this, well, all you need to do, even if you, I, I don't even think I could answer that question in enough time here. I've tried my best to answer why certain people are motivated to commit great acts of evil and deception. But in the end, don't you have enough of a history playbook to look back just to see that, yes, it does indeed exist and it does indeed happen? Like, that's my problem is when I'm talking to people that have problems with my views on what's going on with, say, pandemic or election fraud or any of this other stuff, I just sit back and I go, well, where are the sources of all of your information? Right? Maybe my sources are wrong, but would you also agree that we're only as good as our information? Right? So if we have bad information, we're coming to wrong conclusions. There's informational gaps in our thinking. And that can produce you believing something very fervently that is wrong. In fact, what if I show you the track record of humanity isn't that good when it comes to connecting to actual truth? Most of what we do is absolutely insane. And it's the opposite of truth because we're avoiding reality because we're avoiding the trauma of reality. And in that process, the truth gets lost. And then what do you get? Tyrants, cult leaders, megalomaniacal maniacs running the show, criminality running rampant in your streets, children disconnecting from reality and not being raised properly to have that self-esteem and we were talking about. So all we're trying to do is diagnose it and say, Forget about the motive for now. That's a question that you should sit with. That was a question that I had that I didn't have the answer to. And look, where it led me on 18 years of research to figure it out. And I still have questions about it. But all you need to know, because what people are doing by saying, well, what's the, why would they do that? Why would they lie, Dave? Why would they lie? Why would they want to harm people intentionally? Why would they want to deceive us? Well, all I can tell you is that they're doing it. You're going to have to crack why. Maybe we should ask them. And we should all look into it, but that doesn't mean they're not doing and e they're not doing it. And criminality, corruption, tyranny, and evil doesn't exist or something. So you get a, it's like a, it's like a deer that's out grazing in the field that has a belief in its head that tigers and lions are not stalking it in the long grass behind it. It's like, no, that couldn't happen. There's no way I'm being hunted right now. There's no way. I'm just a deer. I didn't hurt anybody. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just eating some berries. What? Who did I hurt? Why would that lion want to tear me to bits? Well, that's ignorance that's going to lead to your death. That's why I also have a problem with some of this new agey stuff where everybody's like, look, if you just sit in the lotus position on the top of a mountain and meditate and see the world you want, then all this evil is just going to go away. Don't listen to the negative. Don't look at any of that negative, scary stuff. And you go, well, I don't want to like, only look at negative information and become like a manic depressive, but I also don't want to ignore reality and real facts and pretend something's happening that isn't. And so we need a balance. And that's another martial art principle, the yin yang, the balance. You must have good balance. You must have a good foundational stance. You must have good base. And then you can create from that. And so I think a lot of people are just, I think the deep down reason why they won't trust someone like me or you for talking about some of this stuff and pointing them to it. Cause none of this is my opinion. This is just, I'm showing you the research and you can do what you want with it. But I think the reason resistance comes from a fear that you might actually be right. And if you're right, 
on any point, then the whole worldview that that person had has to go down the wind, go out the window. Like I, t- I said it in uh, chapter seven of this series. I call it pharmakia. I asked the question because I opened up the whole thing with a uh, question about the nature of trust. Because I opened it up with Antonio Gutierrez, who's the chief of the United Nations. And he's giving this big speech about how, oh, we have a misinformation pandemic on the internet and we need to censor everybody and maybe only listen to the UN. And, you know, the vaccine is trust, he said. Trust in science. Trust the vaccine. This is what he's saying. So the whole dialogue of the chapter is me asking the question of trust and saying, all right, well, now you bring up the question of trust. Let's really talk about trust. Trust is earned and it has to be maintained over time. And if the, if I, I said to people, if I can show you one instance where these people on your television or your government officials or your health officials or somebody from the World Health, if I can show you that they lied even once, if I can prove to you that Anthony Fauci lied to you once, not misinterpreted, not misreported the facts, not made a mistake, lied knowing what he was saying was a lie. If I can prove that happened once, what does that do to your trust factor? What if I can show you that it's two times or three times or four times or 10 times? Now, how's your trust? What if I show you that Pfizer as a company, just that one pharma company has paid billions of dollars in criminal fines for falsifying data, killing and maiming a lot of people, testing on Nigerian children without their parents' knowledge or consent and killing them in that process, getting washed under the rug, paying some fines and then going right back to work, paying $2.3 billion dollars in criminal fines to the federal government for lying to under testimony, under oath, lying under oath and falsifying scientific data. How's the trust factor now? Because they're still in business, right? And then if I keep adding more to the pile, I could do this all day if you want to talk about trust. So the fact that this guy brought up trust and we're just supposed to trust, I got a few questions. So the only trust has to come from you developing the ability to trust your own mind. Because in the end, guys, I'll sit there and I'll bring my experts of my arguments here to back me up. And then you'll bring your experts of your guys to back you up. And now both of us are in the position of having to decide as an individual, what information am I going to trust? So if I bring a counter narrative to your narrative, You're introduced to something you haven't seen before. And I'm introduced to something I haven't seen before. And then each of us still have to go home and go to sleep at night and wake up and look at ourselves in the mirror and say, did I make the right decision? So it's always you against you. You will always have to come back to the point where you have to make up your own mind. And there's an old adage. I use it all the time. You people should write it down. If you don't control your own mind, someone else will. And just think about the ramifications of that. Are you living your life and thinking your thoughts or are you living vicariously through some other life prescription that was installed into you? And maybe that's why you're confused about what the truth is. Whereas if you could get rid of all the noise and go within and develop that strength and fortitude we're talking about, you could actually develop the ability to trust your own mind enough to sit back and go, well, I'm going to wait till all the data comes in. I'm going to hear from a Dr. Malone and I'm going to hear from a Dr. Fauci. And then I'm going to hear from this person and that person. And I'm going to hear from, and then once I've got my hands around it all, then I'll start making my decisions as to how I'm going to believe and how I'm going to live. 
people don't do any of, they don't even do half of that. And there's that, that adage from Sherlock Holmes in the Sherlock Holmes. I grew up reading Sherlock Holmes, loved it. And he said, it's only through the painstaking elimination of what's untrue that the truth is revealed. So, you, but you can't just jump to the truth. It's not like an app you can download and it just happens. That's what everybody wants. There's a painstaking process of eliminating what's false in order to find the truth because we live in a world of mass deception and people that are self-deceived, right? So these liars and criminals that are running your institutions and your media, the reason they're so good and capable at lying is because they are self-deceived first. And then they just keep transmitting that virus like a virus to you. And that's the truth. So how do you get out? Well, the way out is in. The way out of all this crap is to go within and figure out where do I stand? Am I thinking my thoughts or am I repeating a program that was installed by someone else's thoughts that wants to control my thoughts for their own interest? And that's the question of trust. And that's the story that people need to start asking themselves or that question they have to ask themselves is why, where along the line did you sell off your own rational thinking? I'll tell you where it was. It was when experts in white coats that stood on pulpits above you and spoke down to you, told you, you're not capable of thinking for yourself. You're not capable of being healthy unless you have us telling you what that is. And if you dare step outside of our box, well, you're going to kill other people. You're, going to, you're not going to survive yourself. And they play you like a violin. And deep down, you're looking for direction in life because you didn't find your own inner direction just yet. So you need these people to provide a prescription pathway for you. And you've, that's the process of selling your soul, in my opinion. So I'm just here to encourage people. You don't have to agree with me on everything. Actually, I prefer you didn't because I've earned my mind. I've earned my opinion over a long period of time. I have a totally unique perspective than, than other people. And I did that on purpose. The way I train and teach martial arts is totally different than my senseis. The, the way I teach and talk about this information is totally different than the people that taught me because that's our job is to take what others have built and not just become carbon copies, but what is the Bruce Lee thing? To become a self, to become unique, to stand out, to reforge it, to remix it and add your own flavor. So the fact that we're in a world and they're building this great reset world, by the way, where they want complete and total compliance and contrition to a very select small few people that live in Davos and Rome and Switzerland and London and they want at Washington, and they want you to only live their prescription. Why? Because that prescription is their business model. And you speaking out, raising your hand, asking questions and not doing that is interfering with their business model. So there it is. I laid it all out. There's the big global conspiracy. It all starts within your own mind. David Whitehead, wow. What can I say in response to that? You really did lay it all out there. And there's so much more that we just couldn't cover in a two-hour conversation. So please, can you tell folks where they should go to follow up with you, support you for the hard work you're doing and this very impactful information that you're sharing with us? Where could people go to follow up with that? Well, Mark, thanks, man. And I got to say, I've really enjoyed this chat. I'm, uh, I'm a new fan. 
and uh, let's do it again. And I'd love to meet you in person and, and, you know, we'll get you back training on the mats. Make sure you call oh, your seafood, by the way, go yes. see him. Thank Tell him to you. take the mask off though. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, just uh, if you want to follow my stuff, my main website is dwtruthwarrior.com for that's where you can get my, I do a podcast every week as well called truth warrior. And then if you want the cult of the medics, again, it's freely available. I even have the MP4 download, so You can download it. I don't care if you re-upload it to your channel or edit it and give clips out to people. It, you can get that at cultofthemedics.com. I urge you to start from chapter one and move your way up. We're going all the way to chapter 12 and then who knows where it's going to go. And then for my premium podcast that I do with Michael Tessarian, who's one of my senseis in this field, he's a brilliant genius from Ireland. who's written for years and years on these subjects. He's a one of a kind. He's a, he's that sensei that makes sure he kicks your, he makes you tough and strong. You know, he's, he's a good teacher and you can find that at unslaved.com. It's a subscription to get in both six bucks a month, but it's well worth it because there's thousands of hours of unique research and information that you absolutely will not find anywhere else on the internet. I promise you that. And it's well worth it. And it, it will challenge you as well. So those are my three sites. And uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. David, it's all mine. I love it. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I think my best conversation dealing in martial arts, because you're truly an expert in so many different fields, indispensable. I love this conversation, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Please do go and support David. And thank you for being here. Have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right. Wow. What an episode with David Whitehead. I really felt like we linked up, connected, and made a bond there. Obviously, having martial arts in common makes fast friends out of anyone. But David and I, being podcasters and martial artists, really focused in on why there is so much of that overlap. And uh, I thought David incited the same sort of thing I did, this theme. I mean, think about it. Eddie Bravo, legendary mixed martial artist, almost top five, I would say number one, if we're going to go to the Swarm, number one guest on Tinfoil Hat ever, and huge influence on Joe Rogan, obviously. Joe Rogan being the biggest podcaster in the world. Come on, folks, let's not kid ourselves. And obviously, Joe Rogan's connection to the UFC. I mean, boom, how can we not say that first? So I don't know what it is about martial arts and podcasting, but I'll say Bruce Lee has been a major inspiration in my life. And if you don't have a copy of The Tao of Jeet Kune Do, I recommend buying it. The first chapter is philosophy, and I remember that being the most perplexing, but in hindsight, my favorite part of reading that book. Yes, the martial arts info was great, helped me improve my style, helped me improve my skills as a martial artist. But the philosophy has stuck with me even still to this day, despite the fact that I don't train anymore, which I mentioned to David. He encouraged me to get back in the dojo and i hope i do this year in 2022 
I have to apologize for everybody who was expecting this episode to come out sooner. I just made my debut appearance on the Grimerica show. Very exciting stuff. And that pushed it back a little bit. I did that in the evening a couple hours ago with Darren and Graham. It was a true honor and a true pleasure. They've been on the show twice. Uh, This show, of course. And I've never been on theirs before, so very privileged to have checked that off the list. I've been a big fan of their show way before I ever had a podcast of my own. So be sure to stay tuned to the Grimerica show and uh, listen in for that episode. It should be coming out this week or next week, maybe this week, depending on when you start your week. I tend to start it on uh, Sunday because that's when the calendar started. So... This will be out a day prior to next week. But anyways, enough about mundanities. The Grimerica show is a favorite of mine. I love their show. And it's, like I said, a true privilege to go on there. I talked about Skull and Bones. And I've shared this story a lot about my Amos, Geronimo, Skull story. But I I really will say, unlike every other time I've told this story... I I don't know. This time was totally different. I spent uh I spent a lot more time talking about the details of Skull and Bones. And in the research that I've been doing in the past few weeks, a lot of uh connections have been made. So there are a lot of new pieces of information that have come together uh that you can hear in the Grimerica show. I know I just put uh, an episode out about Skull and Bones this past week, my recent appearance on Lighting the Void. If you couldn't tell, that's becoming a subject that I'm studying. I think I'm going to have Chris Milligan back on the podcast to, dis- to discuss it again, uh, and whoever else I can find. If you have any recommendations, please don't hesitate to send me an email, a telegram, a YouTube comment if you really must insist, but after our David Icke episode and then after our episode with Ark and Neo, we received two strikes in a row, which means I will not be posting to YouTube for a while. That's fine. Not going to bother me one bit, um, but all the more reason for you guys to support us on Rockfin or Patreon. Keep this show going because our days on YouTube are certainly numbered. Uh, It's really a a short lifespan, but it was worth it while we were there. And it's not over yet. I'm sure the two strikes will clear and we'll be fine. We'll be in the, we'll be in the gold and we're good boys. We don't, on this show, we don't, we don't offend anybody. Come on. This is a, this is a very polite conspiracy conversational show. And I should really gravitate away from using that term conspiracy, uh, You'll hear why this coming week when you listen to my most recent conversation with Al Borealis from Forum Borealis. But anyways, David Whitehead, today's guest, he's on Rockfin. He's doing a lot of great, great stuff, great research, connecting the dots way back, showing us how this medical malpractice industry has occult origins. It's very clear. Although we didn't get into the meat and potatoes of that, I think 
David knows what he's doing. He wants you to go and check out the Cult of the Medic series. So I'm going to do that. And I think based on this conversation, he will be joining us again. So after I listen slash watch the Cult of the Medic series, I'm going to invite David back on and maybe we'll get to some of the details because although we did touch on it, I don't know if we dove in, but you know, more power to him. It gets more people over to his content and I respect that. How could I not? He was kind enough to bridge the gap and join us on the show. And he's also going to be joining in on Alt Media United. Another great podcast that just joined forces on Alt Media United is Alpha Cast, brought to you by Alpha Vedic. You might be more familiar with the two hosts, Dr. Bear Lando and Mike Winner. They just joined in on Alt Media United. They'll be joining me on the show very soon. A lot of great guests coming up, some returning guests. Like I said, Al Borealis and I had a conversation for the first time. That was smashing. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. All the way up there in Norseland, in Scandinavia. So we had a really interesting conversation about his life and all the things that he does with his show Forum Borealis, which is an instant, instant favorite of mine. I've only been listening for the past two, three weeks or so. I might have checked it out a few years ago. But uh, after recently listening, I have devoured several different episodes. I recommend his conversation with Ole Damagar and, of course, the OG, Dr. Joseph Farrell. Those interviews are fantastic. And then also, I really enjoyed listening to his conversation with Tobias Churton, all people that we hope to have here on the show. Fingers crossed we'll be having some super special surprise returning guests, big returning guests, not just any returning guests, but some big returning guests joining us here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast real soon. So that about does it for me. I know I said I'm going to do the spirit animal names on the Patreon from now on, so if you want to hear that new Patreon show, it'll be coming out bi-weekly, I think. Just, uh, you know, based on the flow of people onto the Patreon. So I guess the more people that join, the more content I'll do. So every two weeks, I'll cover the new spirit animal names. And I'm also going to fully address all of the questions and comments that you guys send me. Uh, there's just not enough time, and I'm not organized enough to put them in the extended outro in an efficient way. If you send me a really amazing email, if you send me a really awesome comment, uh, yes, I probably will uh, read it on the extended outro. Oh, speaking of which, Juan Ayala just bought something in our merch store. Shout out to you, brother. He just bought... Uh, some Illuminati confirmed stickers. We just made a bunch of Illuminati confirmed stickers. Really cool. Go check them out. Go gecko. Go gecko them out. Go check them out. It's funny I said gecko because geckos are sticky like stickers. So buy some stickers. 
paste them around your neighborhood, put them on your laptop, your skateboard, your guitar case. I don't know. Maybe you put it on your bumper. Maybe you're a lunatic who has a has a bunch of crazy bumper stickers. I would love that. If anybody puts uh, a sticker for the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast on their bumper, I will send you a special gift. It's a very special gift. All you have to do is buy a sticker. Uh, or you know what? If you promise me that you're going to put it on your bumper, I'll send it to you for free. But you got to follow through. So email me about that and uh, we'll hook you up with some stickers. Join in on the Telegram to hang out with cool folks like Juan. Juan is on our Telegram. He's also on the Illuminati Confirmed show. We have a bunch of great episodes on the Patreon that just dropped. Like eight or eight or nine Patreon only exclusive episodes with Juan, Chris, and I just bullshitting and having some fun. You know, we don't bring a guest on for those shows because we just want it to be between the three of us and our amazing supporters like you. So whether you're supporting with your time, your treasure, or your talent, as Adam Curry likes to say, we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. That's how you share your time with us. Thank you for sharing the show with friends. That's another way to share your time. And also, thank you to everyone. A big thank you to everyone who takes a dime or a dollar or even a big donation from their world and passes it into this world because I got a lot of expenses, folks. And I know you don't want to hear any of that. I'm not going to bore you with that. But listen. Once I get my car fixed, Tara and I are going to be driving all over. We're going to be documenting the synchronicities and the synchromysticism of our local landscape. And I've talked about the car issues already. So if you're a diehard listener, you want to support the show, now is the best time. And anybody who signs up for the Patreon will be grandfathered in to whatever membership system we use permanently because our days are numbered on patreon as well don't kid yourself folks so get in while the getting's good sign up early and you will be grandfathered into the new membership area once we go beyond patreon so awesome stuff thank you all don't forget to support the show by getting some merch and uh that's enough for me i've already promoted enough thank you for listening thank you david whitehead for being here be sure to go check out the Truth Warrior podcast, the Unslaved podcast, and of course, the Cult of the Medic series. That's all for now. Thank you for being here and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes. 
innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere. Visit highland.com.